Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we'll be speaking with Doug Melville about his new book, Invisible Generals, Rediscovering Family Legacy and a Quest to Honor America's First Black Generals, which tells the true story of America's first black generals, Benjamin O. Davis Sr. and Ben Davis Jr., a father and son who helped integrate the American military and create the Tuskegee Airmen, among other accomplishments, while working with eight different presidential administrations from FDR to Jimmy Carter. Doug is the Global Head of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, DEI, for an international luxury holding company where he sits on the Governance and Sustainability Committee. He is responsible for drafting the DEI vision, measuring and embedding metrics, and strategizing around DEI as a business solution. Doug Melville, welcome to That Said. Thank you so much for having me today. So this book, Invisible Generals, Rediscovering Family Legacy, A Quest to Honor America's First Black Generals, was a great read. And I'd like to start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and then why did you decide to write this book? So yeah, so uh, I'm Doug Melville and uh, I split my time between Geneva, Switzerland and New York City. And uh, Benjamin O. Davis Jr., who's the centerpiece of the book, was really the centerpiece and patriarch of our family. And it just uh, dawned upon me uh, after watching the Red Tails movie that not only did I not really know about his history, but uh, even my family didn't know. So it sparked me to learn more. And that was what drove me to write the book was knowing that he was in our family, but it wasn't discussed exactly what he did and me taking my time and resources to say, you know, who was this man and is the story worth sharing? And that result of that was the Invisible Generals. And w- what were you doing at the time? You, you go see Red Tails, which is a movie about the Tuskegee Airmen. You watch the film, you realize that General Benjamin Davis one of the most important players in the history of the Tuskegee Airmen essentially is to you use to use your word invisible. He's okay. not um, uh, a named person. What, what were you doing? And then you had this aha moment, like I better take a look at this. Well, it was uh, December 2011 and the movie was to come out at the top of the new year in 2012. And they had had a screening with the actors uh, as well as the producers, the cast, and then also many living Tuskegee Airmen. And I was invited on behalf of uh, General Davis, who was the commander of the Tuskegee Airmen. So when we get into the movie theater and the lights dim and the movie starts, um, you know, about a half hour into the movie, they bring on the commander of the Tuskegee Airmen, and it was played by actor Terrence Howard. And he looked just like Ben, and I was so excited. And then when he came on the screen, he was addressed as Colonel Bullard, not Colonel Davis. And I looked around the theater and wondered, you know, did anybody know that the names aren't, uh, that his name wasn't real, or maybe the other names weren't real as well? I wasn't sure. And then lo and behold, when the movie ended, and there was an after party, I started asking producers and people that were at the party, you know, um, about the names. And I was approached and had a conversation actually with Oprah Winfrey. And she explained to me that this is Hollywood. Mm. 
and that this movie was a long time to get produced and to get created and that the characters were amalgamations of multiple different men because the movie is Hollywood and it's fictional and it's not a documentary. And for some reason, I mean, maybe that was a great teachable, learnable lesson, but for me personally, I just couldn't imagine that they made a movie to honor the Tuskegee Airmen, invited the living ones to attend, and then ultimately none of their names were on the screen, including Ben Davis. And that really sparked me to get more into the story and resulted me into going to my father and being furious and asking him, what, can you believe they removed the names? And my dad said, Doug, if you think removing the names is bad, wait till I tell you how I was raised under Ben and his father because they had raised my dad. And he goes, we had to live like we were invisible because of our race. And they used to call them the invisible generals. And that started me on my journey to write this book. Yeah, you say of them on this journey that these men who we're going to talk about in a minute were lost to history and intentionally buried. That's you know, it's quite a statement, and it seems quite accurate. It's not a hyperbolic statement. Yeah, when I was writing this book, one of the things, Michael, is that the stories that were coming out of their accomplishments were so unbelievable that when we had to get the fact checkers and the source sources, all of it was out there, but it was hard for people to believe that all these stories were coming out of these two men and no one had ever heard of them. Yeah. Well, let's then use that as the segue to start with a generation or two, even before Ben Davis. Tell us who was Lewis Patrick Henry Davis and what was the family relationship to him what what year are we talking about and 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 who was he yeah so the invisible generals is a story of america's first two black generals a father and a son but if you go back one generation previous to them so their father uh or grandfather was lewis patrick henry davis and he uh, was a servant uh that was raised in the family of general logan who many people know, uh, Logan Airport in Boston was named after General Logan and also uh, Logan Circle and Square in Chicago and D.C. And uh, General Logan uh, brought in this young servant child and essentially raised him almost as a son in some ways. Uh, he started out as a servant but then grew closer and closer with the family. And uh, when Ulysses S. Grant became president of the United States for his second term, in the horse and buggy was Ulysses S. Grant, his oldest son, and also Lewis Davis, because Lewis Davis was the occasional babysitter for Ulysses S. Grant's son, and that granted him access to the White House, to senators, at a time when blacks had very, very limited access to these individuals. He was familiar with them and knew them, and that's really the start of the family story because they were able to build the relationships to push the family through. Yes, and so General Logan um, is able to get Lewis, incredibly is able to get Lewis a job in the Department of the Interior and ultimately 
uh, in the office of the assistant attorney general. What what you learned about how how does that come to pass? I mean, it just was so opposite of the history of of people of color in that time period. Well, what I learned was that we don't really know all the stories of the successful people back then. We're just told about lynchings and everybody was in poverty. And I'm sure that was the case for many black Americans. But for my family, um, you know, it starts with allyship, sponsorship. And when he got the opportunity to get this job in the Department of the Interior due to the recommendation of General Logan, that really changed the fate of our family and the fate of history because that was the first step of that allyship and that partnership between them. And when he was able to get that job, he saw the opportunity and vision that he wanted his son, Ben Davis Sr., uh, to follow. But Ben Sr. did not want to work in in uh, government. He wanted to be a military man. And that was kind of where their their intentions kind of separated. But what was interesting to me, you hear all the time about a generational wealth gap. And what was so interesting about um, uh, Lewis Davis was because he had this job, and we're talking now the late 1870s, uh-huh. early 1880s, he develops the capital um, to buy a house. He buys a house at 1830 11th Street. And I have to say, when when I came down to Washington, D.C. for law school, I lived at 1836 S Street, which was essentially 1830 19th Street. So we, we your uh, great-great-grandfather and I lived eight blocks I apart. Um, I love that. You know, so many years later. So, But they buy this house, um, and that tells him the importance of generational wealth. And he develops a philosophy, you write, which was that he taught his children to work within the system to evolve the system. But at the same time, don't don't back down to society. Rather, give society a chance to catch up to, to the values that, that, that you have. So talk about that, because that was that that philosophy of working within the system to help evolve the system becomes generationally Mm -hmm. important in your, in your family. Yeah. Yeah. That would be the motto on our shield. And it was even taught to me at a young age to use the system, to diffuse the system. You get hired within the system, go into the places and start to influence things from within. And that was our family's mission. And that's something that guided us through multiple generations. And, you know, Lewis could have had a different philosophy, but he really saw the value in getting the jobs and the opportunities within the system and then having that seat at the table that would eventually earn you a chance to have a voice and then a vote, which from the outside, the situation wasn't looking that good, particularly for black Americans. So he felt this was the safer, more effective way to evolve America and live a lifestyle that you could be comfortable in. Yeah, and this seat at the table stuff becomes again an important theme in in the Davis family um, mm-hmm. uh, lore. So Lewis is is working in the uh, office of the Assistant Attorney General, and he buys this house at um, eighteen thirty 
11th. We're uh, right about 1880 now. And on May 28th, 1880, their third and youngest son, Ben Oliver Davis, is born. And he becomes known as Ollie. Yeah. Yeah. Ollie was his kind of family name that he was given his nickname. That's what people called him in the family. And uh, he wanted Ollie to work in the government alongside him because he was able to use his generational collateral and political capital to get him a job. But Ollie wanted to fight. So he joined the volunteer military. And when the term was up, he wanted to uh, attend West Point. And this is kind of when race really became a factor in the development of the family. Well, so before he goes to West Point, though, he goes to the M Street High School. So mm-hmm. the M Street High School, which became the Perry School, which is now known as Dunbar High School, was at that time uh, founded. It was founded in the 1870s um, and it was called, I'll read the official name of it, uh, Preparatory High School for Negro Youth. It's a, it's a segregated city, Washington. Um, and in that school, in the M Street School, he joins the school's Corps of Cadets. And that's what entices him into the military. This M Street Preparatory School Corps of Cadets program. Yeah? Exactly. And that was when he saw what you could do as a military man. He liked the idea of the uniform. He liked the idea that you could fight for America. He loved all the attributes of duty, honor, and country. And that's really what sparked him um, and really became his life's passion and mission to join the military from that experience at school. Yeah. And so he applies to West Point and General Logan um, is still around and (laughs) in trying to be helpful again. What does President McKinley say? Yeah, so General Logan was able to get um, Ben Davis Sr. the signatures to get into West Point, which was hard for a black American at that time to obtain the signatures. So when he ended up getting the signatures, he knew he would get in because they were getting the signatures from the former president's best friend and a well-known person who was a congressman and a senator at the same time. But when it gets to the desk of President McKinley, he rejects the application because he doesn't want to get in the habit of allowing blacks into West Point. Now, at that time, the military was segregated. So allowing blacks to be officers in a segregated military was seen by many as a futile exercise because they couldn't be in charge of anybody. And policy at that time prevented blacks from not only Um, overseeing whites in command, but also whites did not have to salute blacks in uniform. So McKinley rejects the application. Yeah. And so he graduates in 1898, um, serves briefly as a second lieutenant in the D.C. National Guard, um, but then decides to join the Army as a private. Had he been able to go to West Point, he would have come into the Army as an officer, but because McKinley does not denies him that that opportunity, he has to come in as a a regular army private, um, a full buck private. They called it. It's the lowest, you know. I mean, and that for his dad was insulting to the family name. He he had felt that if he couldn't get in in a classy way, that the Davis way with the connections 
then it really wasn't worth your time doing it. So Ben Sr. writes his dad a letter and takes a one-way train to Wyoming because he had heard about the Buffalo Soldiers, which was the one group of, of black soldiers in America. And they were stationed in Wyoming, and their task was to push the Native Americans farther out west uh, on behalf of the United States military. And when he arrived there, uh, he was a private, you know, just like anyone who goes to a local registration center and signs up for the military. And um, when he became a general many years later, most people would say they weren't sure if any other general previously or forward had just been a private upon entering the military because it's so improbable that you would get that high. But that's exactly what he did. He entered as a private and joined the Buffalo Soldiers. Well, and in fact, the, the thing that's making that rise even more improbable is that black soldiers in this segregated military at this time were given what are known as pick and shovel jobs only. Yeah. Yeah. So pick and shovel jobs were the jobs that blacks were assigned to do, which were, you know, uh, build tents, lay railroads, move things like very heavy on logistics. You know, every single cook in, in the army at that time was black, every single server, every single person cleaning, every crew person. So the jobs were really bucketed to very specific, heavy, hard labor tasks for the greater good of the country, but none of the glory jobs, fighting at the battles, being at the front line. Um, and and this is where Ben Sr. found the Buffalo Soldiers, and they were an active group of men. So uh, he actually met Charles Young, who was the one West Point graduate at that time who was in the Buffalo Soldiers. And Charles Young had told him if he focused on equestrian, he could... Uh, promote himself and move up the ranks. And Ben Sr. studied horse riding and equestrian for years. And just so happens that two years later, after arriving in Wyoming, he gets uh, a letter that he was going to be up for promotion to become an officer. And that officer promotion was approved by President McKinley, the same person who had rejected him to get into West Point approved him and sent him a letter that said, I saved you two years of your life by not having you go to West Point. Because he comes to the uh, officer position two years earlier. That was sort of the inside inside, yeah, yeah. inside joke. Yeah, I, I expect <laughs> that um, that he didn't quite find it as, as funny. He would have preferred no, to, to no. come in through the front uh, door of West Point than... Uh, but, but the funny thing is, uh, the Buffalo Soldiers, which of course is a famous song by Bob Marley and the, the Whalers, was a, the, sort of the nickname that the Native Americans gave the African-American soldiers, uh, right? Yeah, so the Buffalo Soldiers was a term that was given to them uh, as kind of a term of endearment by the Native Americans who uh, related their skin texture and their hair to that of the wild buffalo. So when they saw them on their horses from afar with the skin texture and the hair, they referred to them as buffalo soldiers as kind of a, an honor in some ways that they move like the buffalo in the wild uh, throughout the night and the day. Yeah. The sad thing, of course, is that you have the, these two dispossessed groups fighting one another on behalf of white expansion 
in, in into the West, Andrew Jackson's Trail of Tears and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and actually they became many of them actually became friends with the Native Americans because they really had a shared oppression in many ways. And and you know, they didn't really want to be violent with the Native Americans. I mean, they had a job to do, but it wasn't something that was built out of, you know, savagery. It was more of a collective, you know, just move down the way if you can. And there was a level of empathy on both sides. You write of Ali that every day he would be faced with what your family would call indignities. You say that the indignities were something your family, including you, were taught to understand, to live with, and move past with professionalism. So another creed or credo, maybe, another credo of your family, which is important. Yeah, the, the term indignities was ingrained in me just from a child, and this was just the ongoing... Um, I guess in today's world, the word would be microaggressions or insults. But in that time, they used the term indignities. And that was just when people would walk past you, step on your foot, say something to you, give you the worst you know, meal, the, the end of the loaf of bread, the cold soup, the leaky barracks, you know, whatever was the worst thing that was available to the group would typically go to the black soldier or the black American. So my family, and it really started with Lewis telling Ben Sr. And then Ben Sr. and all the way down the generations would just say, those individuals aren't evolved. It's their loss, not yours. Keep moving, keep going towards the goal. And I think if we just stop the story right there, this is a hard way to live. This is a hard way to live every single day of your life. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about Ali, uh, Ben Sr., and then I want to turn to Ben Jr. So we'll be, we'll be right back. We're talking with Doug Melville about his book, Invisible Generals, and we've been talking about Ben Davis Sr., Ali, as he, he was known, and his career is progressing. He's a officer now. He's a equestrian um, specialist, and things seem to be moving forward, albeit incrementally, um, in his military career. But then tragedy strikes him at, at home um, with the death of, of Eleanor. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so Ben Sr. was really trying to juggle family and the military. He wanted to raise his son uh, like his father had raised him and have that bond that he had with his dad, with his own son. And uh, during the childbirth of his third child, uh, his wife dies. So now he's a single father with three children, two women, one son, and he's now tasked with figuring out how to raise them he doesn't want to break them up which was the option to send one child to different family members so he calls on his dad uh he asked for uh international assignments so he could move his career up faster because the assignments in america were really in the jim crow era and he really couldn't grow his career as fast as he needed to to support the family so he requested to be sent overseas, but with that, he would have to have someone take care of these three children. And that was when 
he left the children with his dad, Louis Davis, in the house in Washington, D.C., and had them raise the children for much of their youth so they could grow up in a world where they had a bond with family, they can understand the family values, and they could also stay together to support each other. And that was how his kids were raised while he was a single father. Hence the importance of 1830 11th Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's why this house is really so important. And when we really look at the importance of the generational collateral, a home can really save your life because it's a, if they don't have this home, there is nowhere for them to go. And that was really the importance of homeownership still today. But back then in particular, uh, it was even more important. You wrote something that struck me as important to emphasize too about this time where he's off at the Philippines and his folks are raising his three children, you write that sometimes being extraordinary, which is what he really was, sometimes being extraordinary isn't only about professional accomplishments, it's about the sacrifices in our personal lives and relationships. Yeah, and I, um, that was so important to me because all the books, you know, Ben Sr., had a, uh, Ali, he had a biography written about him. Ben Jr. made an autobiography. But I think when you tell the military stories, many of the times the family side is left out. And the families are such a part of the stories, but people don't know the family side of the story. And it just happened to be that when I started learning this story, I only learned it I was learning it in the history books, but learning it from my dad who was there made me understand both sides of the story and try to write something that had a little bit more tenderness and appreciation for family when a lot of times these military stories are told and you really don't know about the individual's families. Yeah, and the sacrifices that people go through um, uh, on their on their journeys. So. Off he goes, Ollie goes to the Philippines, he comes back, he remarries, and he, as you said, as an officer, cannot command white office, white soldiers. They don't even have to salute him. And so now they don't know what to do with him, in, in, in a sense. And they decide to assign him to teach military science and tactics at the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. And that starts a whole, you know, sort of two roads diverged in a wood and I took the one less traveled. This trip to Tuskegee um, really set in motion a career path that would have not been expected. Yeah, him going to Tuskegee and teaching military science down there was actually critical because he was able to assess not only the individuals there, but the land and the resources that the Tuskegee Institute offered. And that would ultimately become the home for the Tuskegee Airmen years in advance that he would not know of. But it was his knowledge and understanding of military science and him building up a hub there that actually led the government to pick that site for the black fighter pilots of World War II. So him going there was really actually a benefit um, it was kind of a blessing in disguise, you would say, for the generational story. But at the time, he was very upset 
that he was ranked where he was and was never allowed to go into combat or fight and that he was stuck teaching. But I think in the long run, it was really for the good. Yeah, and in fact, what he didn't know was in 1925, he, he goes to Tuskegee in, in around 1920-ish. And in 1925, the U.S. Army War College in, uh, issues a internal report um, on black soldiers um, capitating uh, their careers. Tell us a little bit about the internal report. Then I'd like to switch over to uh, Ben Jr. Yeah. So the U.S. Army War College report on the Negro soldier was written by not one doctor, not one scientist, but it was actually a group of individuals that really wanted to limit the progress of blacks in the military. And at this time, the United States military was becoming the largest company in America. So if if the military was an actual corporation, it started to get more and more people involved and grow larger and larger. And as that expansion was happening and there was social pressures, the Army War College report was written to let everybody know that Blacks uh, ran from danger, weren't able to be good leaders, weren't allowed to operate heavy machinery. And even though no scientists and no doctors looked at this report, once it was published across the military, the private sector picked up many of these habits that the army was writing because they were considered the best in class source for knowledge. And this is actually what limited Ben Davis Sr.'s career until the Tuskegee Airmen where the 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 um, limits were lifted. It's just incredible. These little slights, as you call them in your family, these little indignities, this secret report, not based on the observations of generals in the field or any such thing, as you say, by medical science, um, but just pure prejudice, just mm-hmm. pure prejudice. And that's really the part of this is that things were really done just out of prejudice. I mean, people think that there was a rhyme or reason, there's a judge and a jury, but at the time it was just moving along, getting like-minded people in a room, hiring friends and people that were relatable and passing policies to limit the opportunities of different Americans. So Ben Oliver Davis Jr., Ben, Ali's mm-hmm. son um, comes into being. Tell us, tell us who he was, your relationship to him, and let's start on his career. Yeah. So Ben Junior, um, I I knew most of my life. You know, he. I tell people, you know, in the most uh, loving way that he bought me my first Apple computer. He bought me my first set of golf clubs, my first car, paid for my college. He was the center of our family. And he was so loving and so nice that I really didn't know what he did growing up or what he went through. So I had a relationship with him all the way till he passed um, in early 2000s. But at the time, he was a, a, a child who had lost his mother. His dad was here and sometimes there. He had a close relationship with his grandparents. And uh, his dad takes him one afternoon uh, to a barnstorming plane ride. It was a traveling barnstorming plane exhibit because aviation was very, very new. 
So this is biplanes on dirt, you know, fields. And he paid one week salary, uh, Ben Davis Sr. did, for his son to fly in a plane for 15 minutes just to be inspired and just because he had really asked them again and again. And when he comes down, he says, Daddy, I want to be a pilot. And when we talk about turning points of the story, most parents would say, that's nice, son. You know, I think everybody wants to be a pilot. But his dad said, if you want to be a pilot, I want to help you live your dream. And if you follow my direction, we can get you into West Point. And if you graduate in the top third of your class, even the United States military cannot turn down a United States Military Academy graduate. So we have to get you into West Point and get you to graduate in the third of your class so you could live your dream. Because in the private sector, they're never going to allow blacks to fly. But in the military sector, even a West Point grad will have that opportunity. And him and his son make a deal that Ben Jr. is going to follow everything his dad says. And I kind of compare this to, you know, when you see Tiger Woods or Venus and Serena, all these child prodigies in some way, they have a parent that's waking up with them, bringing them to the range. And that's exactly what Ali did to his son, Ben. He trained him as if he was a soldier, get up with him, lights out with him, eat with him every single step of the way so he could be prepared to go into West Point and graduate. And in fact, he does. He, and he does. He applies and he arrives in West Point in 1932. <laughs> Is he now the second African-American to have been in West Point, you mentioned um, Young. Uh -huh. uh, but is, is he literally number two? No, um, actually, there was a flipper. Uh, there, there was actually, he's the fourth graduate fourth. Of, of West Point, uh, but the first in since the 20th century. So uh, when he applies to get into West Point, uh, he has to get the signature like his dad got from General Logan, but there was only one black congressperson in the whole United States at the time, Oscar DePriest. So they had to sell the family house. And now this is what I say, a sacrifice of a, of a father for a son. Sell the family house in Washington, D.C. to relocate the whole family to Illinois to live in the district of Oscar DePriest for one year in order for his son to get the signature to go to West Point. So sacrifice on level 10. And after Ben gets the signature and takes the test, he fails the test. And his dad says, no problem. We just send you off to school at college and you get better. And we take it again next year. And when they take it for the second time, he gets in and it, he arrives in the summer of 1932 to West Point, and they don't know he's black upon arrival. So they pull him into the commandant's office, and under the sign that says duty, honor, and country, they assign him a converted janitor's closet to live in with no roommate at the end of the hall. And here you have Ben Davis Jr., who's 18 years old. His first night at school, he has no roommate at the end of the hall, and he goes to bed that night scared and nervous of what's to come 
because you're just at this place now. And he wakes up early the next morning and hears the pitter patter of feet. And he thinks that there's a meeting that everyone is scheduled to attend, but he didn't get the notice because knew, no one knew his room was occupied because it was at the end of the hall. So he gets dressed and runs down to the room, Michael, and he tries to open the doors and the doors are locked and he listens in and it was every single cadet and faculty. And they said, we accidentally allowed an N word in. You are to treat him as if he's invisible until he drops out. He doesn't drop out. His father, uh, as we talked about, the, the, the family culture was uh, perseverance, even in the face of horrible uh, treatment. And for all his four years, essentially, he's given the silent treatment. No one eats with him. No one talks to him. He's there an island unto himself. Yeah, he was alone in the crowd. And this is where you talk about mental fortitude and talk about indignities. This was another level. And he went there for four years, 50 weeks a year. And he did not have one interaction outside the line of duty. He couldn't go in the library. He had no study buddies. He failed classes like boxing because no one would get in the ring with him. He took his own segregated bus to the Army-Navy game at Yankee Stadium. But the one thing he would talk about, which was the scarring reality of his time there, was that you had to ask for permission to sit when you ate three times a day. And because no one would give him permission to sit when he would ask, he would spend every single meal holding a tray of food walking to every table saying, do I have permission to sit? Do I have permission to sit? And being told no until the time expired. And then he had to eat standing up and then go back to the drills. Every single day, three meals a day, 50 weeks a year for four years. It's unbelievable. And what strikes me as incredible, one is that he persevered. Most people would not, they would have left. Um, but second, in his autobiography, he wrote, I never felt sorry for myself. I knew I could push aside any obstacle in my path. My father had taught me to be strong. He had endured adversity, and so could I. And that's the moral of the story, because other blacks had been to West Point before and not been able to get through this. So it got to a point where he realized this was just what was happening when blacks were uh, admitted into West Point. And his fortitude and his uh, focus, you know, when he called his dad, when he realized they were silencing him and he said, son, there's 13 million blacks on the outside rooting for you, you know, write the graduation date on the wall. And no matter what anybody does, you have to graduate in the top third if you want to live your dream as a pilot. And Ben would look back and say, because he was isolated, not tortured, it actually worked in his favor because he was able to focus on passing the classes and learning the material by himself in enough time where he was able to do it properly and get the grades he needed to finish in the top third. So he graduates. Again, we're in this situation now. We have a father and son um, in the military, two highest ranking um, African-Americans 
in, in the military. And I say African-Americans, I'm going to come back to that in, 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 in a minute. I said it on purpose, but we're going to come, we're going to come back to that. Um, and the War Department, as it was known, it wasn't yet the Department of Defense. The War Department doesn't know what to do with these uh, officers. They, they're unable to uh, command uh, white troops. They're not able to, to, to go to war. Um, the military is not going to get desegregated until 1948. And so they get sent on the road, if you will, uh, to teach, again, military science and tactics um, and to work with the ROTC, the Reserve Officer Training Corps students throughout the um, black colleges, principally in the South. Yes? Yes. Yeah, so when Ben graduates in 1936, he is in the top third of his class. But due to that Army War Report document, he's not allowed to operate heavy machinery, so they won't allow him to assign himself to a flying unit. So upon graduation, when him and his dad shake hands, they become the only two black line officers in the entire military out of 335,000 men. So I think, you know, to really look at the isolation. So to everything you said, there's nothing for them to do. So they put them in a Jeep and they go to black colleges to teach these men, be confident, put your head up, put your chin up, look ahead one day this country will need you. And instead of complaining about it, we need you to be ready for it. And they did this for four years until 1940 uh, when President FDR was seeking reelection and this changed everything. Well, tell us a little bit about that because what we have in this period, this early 1940, late 30s, 40 period, um, not only is Roosevelt going to need the, the black vote to win reelection, but he has also stood up a policy committee on what he called the Policy Committee on Negro Troop Policies. Okay. Um, so talk about that. And we should remind our audience that we listened to an uh, author conversation with, about a book called White Lies about Walter White, who was the head of the NAACP, who too was tasked by Roosevelt to report on conditions of black troops abroad a little bit later when the war war starts. So Ali is given what is, I think, an important job, uh, though it wasn't necessarily intended to be um, at the time Roosevelt gave it to him. So what's going on here? Yeah. So Roosevelt, um, many of the, uh, at this time, most blacks were voting Republican due to the fact that Abraham Lincoln had emancipated the enslaved. So many blacks were voting Republican automatically up and down the ticket. So FDR wanted to ensure that he could get the black vote. So this um, committee to help with the Negro soldier was really to find out what they could do to get the black vote among black soldiers and their families and their friends because the constituency was growing. And Ben Sr.'s recommendation was you have to give blacks equal pay in the military and equal assignments across the military which means non-pick-and-shovel jobs, which includes the most elite job, which would be flying airplanes. So the recommendation was to start a black uh, pilot group that could be the first black fighter pilot group that could show and prove that black Americans were qualified to operate heavy machinery and they could do elite-level jobs in the military. 
and FDR said, who would lead that? And Ben Davis Sr. said, my son. And this is the moment where they select Tuskegee, Alabama for the place of that training. And they send down uh, several black uh, individuals to be pilot training, to go through the training. Because Ben Jr. had graduated from West Point. He was the highest ranked. And on that day of March uh, 1941, uh, Ben Davis Jr. Uh, became America's uh, first black pilot in the Army. And he became the leader of what would become the Tuskegee Airmen. And I want to talk about that in a minute. We're going to take our second break, and then we'll be right back. We're back. We're talking with Doug Melville about his book, Invisible Generals. And where we left off essentially is the formation of what become the Tuskegee Airmen or the famous Red Tails. So tell us, tell us about this unit and, and what it was able to accomplish. So um, once Ben goes down there, the graduation rate for blacks in America was under 10%. The literacy rate was quite low. So when FDR had uh, originally created this idea, it was called the Tuskegee Experiment because it was really just to have an experiment to see if blacks could operate heavy machinery. It was never really intended to go to war or really be effective. And Ben would share all the small things that they would do, lack of food, lack of good planes. Um, the military is still segregated, so they had to have separate tools. If the tool worked on the white airplane, it couldn't be worked on a black airplane. If a mechanic worked on a white airplane, he couldn't work on a black airplane. So what Ben realized was this whole thing was really set up to fail. But because he had gone to those black colleges for four years with his father, when they were looking for more people to join the Tuskegee experiment, FDR and the military brass didn't think that there would be enough people to go down there and it would just dissolve. But because they had had all this exposure and because Ben Sr. had lived and worked down there, when they made the call, 15,000 qualified black men and women arrived in Tuskegee. And over the course of the next few years, Ben Davis Sr. would end up training and leading the, these 15,000 people, which are now known as the Tuskegee Airmen. So it was 1,000 plus pilots and in 14,000 support staff, bombardiers, ground crew, in a 100% segregated division of the United States Army. And it was being commanded by a 29-year-old man, young man, who had never commanded anyone in his whole life outside of West Point. And your grandfather. Yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable. The story is, I mean, even when I tell it, you know, it's really unbelievable that this worked. You know, and that it was pulled off and that this succeeded because it was like a one shot thing. You yeah. know, it was a million to one. And um, after after training for years and having to take the test again and again, they would not deploy the black pilots. And it became a whole political issue at the time where Time magazine wrote an article you know, experiment proved like, you know, we're in the middle of a war that was by no means won by the allies. You know, Hitler was taking over so much of, of Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, and the allied forces were, were looking, you know, 
the outcome was still to be determined. So a lot of people couldn't understand why the United States military was messing around with this black pilot group in the middle of a war. And meanwhile, um, Ben Davis Jr. is trying to figure out why they don't just deploy the men. He couldn't understand why you just didn't let us fight. And ultimately, they sent them to North Africa, and then they sent the men to Ramatelli, Italy. And when they got to Ramatelli, Ramatelli Italy, Michael, they realized that they were going to have to give them new airplanes because the planes that they were training and flying with were pieced together of different planes and models, and it just wasn't going to work. And that's when they rolled off the P-51 Mustang and the P-47 which would become the fastest propeller planes ever produced. The next level of plane after that was jet planes. And that was the P-51 plane model that we associate with them um, as the red tails. This is a conversation that could last three hours. And it's, it's so interesting. And I want to just do one thing more on, on the red tails and tell us about how the tails got to be red and what was written on the nose of, of these planes? So when Ben got to Ramatelli and he was standing in front of maps that he was receiving, because we have to remember, there's no real computers. Everything is through the wire. Everything is on physical maps. And he started receiving maps of where different bases were set up and realized that the maps were segregated. So his men were in a place and location that wasn't showing up on other allied maps. So he said, guys, and just to play it safe so nobody hits us, the good guys don't come for us when they see us, we should paint the tails of the plane red so people know we're Americans. And he commanded all the men to go out and paint the tails red. And it was actually 4th of July weekend before their longest mission. And that was the beginning of the red tails. Um, and on the nose of the plane, uh, Ben, as the commander, put by request. So in the travel logs, it would say Benjamin Davis by request. And it was a double entendre for people to say it, but also for people to read it. So every time that he was there, he would say he was there by request of the president of the United States. And that's how he got the name by request for Ben Davis. And that was why the Tuskegee Airmen were requested so often to be the bombardiers um, to guard the, the bombers during World War II. Yeah. And they became one of the most highly decorated uh, units um, in, in the military. So sort of a happy-ish um, ending to, to this part. But at the same time, um, Ben and... Agatha, his wife, have sort of sorrow at home. Remember, we, we talked about mm -hmm. the importance in your narrative about the sacrifices, and they had sacrifices at, at home in respect of um, childbearing. Yeah, so Ben wanted to uh, have the same relationship with a son that his dad had with him um, and that his grandfather had with his dad, but... Um, you know, Agatha and Ben were never able to conceive a child, and we would end up finding out later uh, that she had had a hysterectomy while she was at Tuskegee. Um, and Ben had shared with me that the military didn't really want the Davises to continue 
because of the fact that they were so ingrained and they were so politically connected. Um, so we don't know the full background of the hysterectomy, if it was done during a normal procedure when a lot of women were given hysterectomies back then, just because if they were sick or they didn't want them to reproduce, it was just a common kind of catch-all procedure for women at the time. But what we do know is that when they realized they couldn't have a child, um, Ben and his wife, Agatha, uh, went up to Connecticut to New Haven where my dad was living with his grandparents. And, and they took my dad at seven years old down to Tuskegee and they raised him as their son. Many times Ben was off at war. So Agatha was at home and she raised my dad as if it was her son. And he lived and experienced the whole journey of, of their modern life uh, as a witness to the treatment, the indignities. And he was really under the radar and they trained him um, to do what he wanted to do, uh, which was to be a pilot. But his vision was so bad that um, Ben sat him down one day and said, you know, I know you want to be a pilot, but I think the next area that you should go into, I went into aviation, my dad went into the army, but you should go into law because the next sector that we need to really be engaged in is policy writing. And he encouraged my dad to go to law school at Howard Law. And in that time when my dad went there in the 60s, it was really the center of civil rights. And my dad was able to go there and um, and graduate in a class when, you know, Howard Law was only 200 people for the whole law school, all three grades. Yeah. And to be clear, your, your dad, um, Lawrence L. Scott, Melville and uh -huh. some people knew him as Scott and some people knew him as as Larry was actually um, Ben Jr.'s nephew. Right. He was Ben Jr.'s nephew um, by but raised but raised as if he were his son. Yeah, exactly. So he was Ben Davis Jr.'s nephew because he never had uh, a son with his wife, but he was raised as his son by Ben his whole life. And, you know, when I was born and I started to know Ben, I mean, to me, you know, he was, he was really, he was my dad's dad. They were partners in crime. They would talk every day, you know, and my dad was so thankful for Ben because my dad's parents weren't raising him and Ben needed a son to really pass the legacy down to. So they really became tight knit and going back to the importance of family, Ben Jr. did not have to do that. I mean, when you really look at this, he did not have to go out of his way to raise a child and build the family. He could have just gone out and said, this is the way it is, and we just move on. So it really shows the sacrifice and commitment to family that I really wanted to come out in the book. Yeah. And your dad, um, Scott, as my family knows him, because my family, as we were talking before the show... Um, comes out of the judiciary in Connecticut, where your dad becomes a, a judge in, in in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and was a famous trial lawyer beforehand, representing uh, people in the Black Panther Party um, in a very famous New Haven uh, trial. But he becomes one of the first black judges on the Connecticut uh, Superior Court, your dad does. Yeah, and this was a big, it was big for him 
And, um, you know, funny enough, my dad, uh, when he went to Howard, lawyers that were presenting to the Supreme Court uh, at that time, Thurgood Marshall was a lawyer presenting to the Supreme Court, and he actually worked with students at Howard to role play so they could know how to be judges and know how to present. So before Thurgood Marshall got his seat on the Supreme Court, in some ways, he was my dad's mentor with with dozens of other students at Howard. But this is really what inspired my dad to believe he could become a judge. And lo and behold, in 1977 in Bridgeport, Connecticut, he became a Superior Court judge. Yeah. And the ethic that he inherited and which yeah. sort of changes a little bit, which was to say to you, essentially, um, son, Look on the bright side of things, even in the face of disappointment. Yeah, and my dad was like the eternal optimist, and all he wanted me to do was focus on performance, you know, be meticulous in my actions, and do what I wanted to do. But he really shielded me from a lot of these stories. And I didn't know many of these stories like I tell them today because my dad was so um, focused on pushing us forward. He didn't want the baggage of the past to weigh us down and to prevent us from being successful. So he really didn't share these stories because he grew up invisible. You know, he would always tell me we couldn't we couldn't drive at night because Ben wouldn't let us because cops could pull us over. We were always the last ones to eat. We were always the first ones at the store in case they said they ran out of food. Like my dad grew up in this environment and he really didn't want us to have those limitations mentally that he had. So he pushed us to do what we wanted to do, but that included not really sharing this story with us until really later in life. And you write of this, that their invisibility um, was both their oxygen and their pain. It allowed them to succeed in the short term, um, but it allowed also their longer term achievements to be more easily erased. Exactly. And I don't think they looked at legacy. I mean, they definitely knew their legacy, but you could only fight so many things at the same time. So they were just trying to survive and move ahead. And I think being invisible allowed that. But when it came down to who got recognized, their invisibility absolutely is the reason why no one had heard of this story. Yeah. And there's a lot that I'm not going to talk about because I really want people to buy this book um, because there are so many things that are so wonderful to learn. And in the sort of happy ending-ish part of it, and then I want to just turn to branding uh, in the last bit of our interview, tell us about the Davis Barracks at West Point because this is a great story. So when all was said and done, um, after the movie Red Tails, I set a Google alert and I said to myself, I want to, anytime anybody ever mentions Ben Davis Jr.'s name or senior, I want to show up. I want to tell them the family story. And in 2015, the Google alert went off and it was West Point. And there was a barracks being built and there were three names under consideration. And it was William Westmoreland, Norman Schwarzkopf, and Benjamin O. Davis Jr. And uh, I went and told the story like I'm telling you here today, and they decided to name the largest, most expensive barracks, $100 million in the center of campus, 
after Benjamin O. Davis Jr. and recognize him as one of the greatest graduates in the history of West Point and acknowledge that he went there for four years with no one talking to him. And when I went back to campus, Michael, to cut the ribbon, and I saw the cadets tell me, it's so hard to graduate from here. For you to do it with no one talking to you is just, it's like a legendary story. And that was really the happy ending to make sure he was visible in a place where he spent his life as being invisible. And then two years after that, we were fortunate enough to have the Air Force Academy rename their airfield after Benjamin O. Davis and paint the training gliders tails red. And they say in honor of Benjamin O. Davis. So as of last year, all the cadets from the Air Force Academy that graduated flew gliders with red tails on it in honor of Ben. Yeah, that's the U.S. airfield in Tuskegee. Oh, no, in um, Colorado. In Colorado, yeah. So I mentioned earlier in the conversation the term African-American. Um, tell, tell us about that and, 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 your, and your family. So I, Ben fought his whole life to just be known as American, and he felt that after they were called Negro Americans, the next term that should be associated with Negro Americans would just be to call them Black Americans. And uh, I don't, I mention it in the book, but I don't harp too much on it. But I talk about when Jesse Jackson had the press conference to change the word Negro in the newspapers to African American. And he called Ben and asked him if he would support it and other prominent blacks as well. And Ben said, I fought my whole life to be an American and we actually should just address ourselves as such. So if you pushed him, he would identify as a black American, but he never wanted to use the term African-American because he felt we had earned the right to be simply American. So I don't typically use that term, but um, I do understand the history behind it. And also that Jesse Jackson created it. I don't think people really know that as well. Yeah. But what's interesting is in the donation of all the memor memorabilia from your family, your, your mom, was it? She scratches out African-American and just leaves American on it. So if it says, here's a photo of Ben Davis Jr., the first four-star African-American um, general, which he was, which Clinton gave him the fourth star after retirement, she scratches on the, uh, on the photo the word African. Because he, because he wanted so much just to be the American Fourth Star General, yeah, exactly. And um, when the Smithsonian came to collect their goods for display or to be housed in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, upon them coming to load the items in the truck, Ben's wife for sixty plus years stood at the door, and she crossed out the word African on item after item, and wrote a letter to the Smithsonian that they showed me that said, in the eyes of history, we feel that we have earned the right to be categorized as simply Americans. It's great. Part two of this book, um, which I actually would like to have you back to do a, a longer conversation on this, um, but part two of the book is how to become a visible general. We've talked about your family and their invisibility and you have made a, a, a great career in the area of branding and, and visibility. And part two says here 
are my ideas about how you can go about um, becoming visible. So okay. can we talk about this and branding? And then I promise we're going to have part two of this conversation. We're going to talk all about DEI and branding. And I want you to tell us about the uh, campaign you led to retire Aunt Jemima as a, as a brand. Yeah. So um, when I, when I saw the Red Tails movie, not only did I uh, start on my quest to learn more about my family, but I also switched careers to become a corporate diversity officer. So in the year 2012, um, I began my career to advise companies all around the world, uh, big brands, everyday products and services that we all use on how to be more inclusive and equitable uh, and to ensure that those that were left invisible, whether they're women or uh, historically excluded groups had that light and had that poise and had that moment so they could be visible. So I really looked at my learnings from my family and, and translated them to work. And then I took my learnings from work and, and translated them to my family. So uh, to ensure that we have control of our own names and likeness. And in the second part of the book, to me, the most important takeaway is there's so many stories out there. And we don't know because the silent generation doesn't speak, but it's our responsibility. We have all the tools and resources to help make all these invisible stories of our parents, our grandparents, families of veterans, which most of them are in public domain. And people don't know that if a journalist or someone writes about your family, you don't even control the narrative or own it. So I think it's just an important exercise to say, when you look at your family, who are your family uh, values? What do they stand for? What is your family brand? And going back to the areas like use the system to diffuse the system or indignities, look at the areas that your family built for you as generational collateral and figure out how to turn that into a positive. Right. And in respect of that, and this is important for um, our sort of C-suite um, audience and those who are operating within that environment, you say there are things that you need to be able to do to help in this process. And I'll give you the, there are a long list of them, but the, the ones that struck me are differentiate yourself, harness the power of perseverance, expect setback and seek support and choose your own path and use optimism as an operating system. So we, can you take mm -hmm. us out of this interview by talking through, I know that's a big topic, but talk us, talk us through this and then we'll flesh it out in part two of this a little bit later in the yeah. season. Yeah, no, but uh, I think the thing is, is that there is something called oppression fatigue. I mean, I just working in corporate diversity and seeing the narratives around corporate D&I right now, we've come to the point where we've talked about it People have had many different definitions for it, but we have to look at it and say there's more people now looking at the challenges than ever before. We have everything we could ever want. Society's farther along than it's ever been. We have to look at positivity and optimism as a superpower and as a fuel to drive us forward. And don't take the time to criticize, but take the time to teach. If you see something, don't blow people up on social. 
contact them and communicate with them and say, listen, we all can move better together. And the story that you had touched on around Aunt Jemima was something that when I worked in DNI, uh, one of our clients was PepsiCo. And um, when discussing with them Aunt Jemima and what she stood for historically, working with them to lead the retirement process was how Aunt Jemima, Aunt Jemima got retired. Although people were yelling and screaming, what are you doing? How is this a thing today? Sometimes that doesn't work. Use the system to diffuse the system, communicate and be optimistic, and you will get a much juicier fruit that way than and using salt. And that's true salt. for individuals within the company. But I think most importantly, through leadership of companies trying to create an inclusive culture that in an organization that people will want to work for. Is that right? Absolutely. And that that's the whole thing. Sometimes you don't have to make big messages and scream from the top of a roof. Small, ongoing, consistent changes that are actions go much farther than big statements and commitments right. that can't be fulfilled. So you have one line in the book at the end, which is, our lives are the receipts of our ancestors' journeys. And your ancestors had quite a journey. They did it. And I'm so proud that I can continue it. You know, Ben used to tell me, Doug, the impossible takes time, but in time you can accomplish the impossible. And when I saw the barracks and the one other thing I want to do for Ben is get him a presidential medal of freedom from the White House. I want to continue what he started and make him proud and actually take the receipts of what he bought and, and continue well, to build up. proud. And if your dad's not proud, I don't know what proud means. Doug Melville, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. The yeah. book is Invisible Generals, Rediscovering Family Legacy and a Quest to Honor America's First Black Generals. Thank you so much for being with me today on That Said. Thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate it. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please address any comments or questions to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. For That Said, I am Michael Zeldin. MSW Media.